Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kyle Morey. I have the uh, honor of reading uh, God's Word to you this morning. I'm a covenant member of The Well. I serve in Well Kids, and I'm part of the Mainers CG. This morning, I'll be reading Titus 3, 3 to 11. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, You had to be there. Men's retreat. Uh, hey, I would like to start off this morning by addressing two very important things. Uh, first of all, this is the first time in the Wells history, uh, and perhaps the history of any church since creation, where there were more men than women at retreats this year. Let's go, y'all. So all y'all to be like, the men ain't out here. We here. All right, we here, all right. Uh, secondly, yes, Travis, our church planner, Ian and I did win the men's basketball tournament this year. Despite my continually increasing age, thank you for asking, all right. Fine wine, just kidding. Um, hey, I hope that y'all enjoyed retreats. Okay, we have a ton to cover today. Uh, and while I was highly, highly uh, tempted to conjure up my inner black Baptist and keep us here till 2 p.m., I also didn't want our congregation to shrink in half, all right? So uh, let's go ahead and jump right in. Also in the black Baptist church, if I would have said that, inevitably, two or three people would have said, take your time, pastor. All right. And if I said a joke about it, somebody for sure would have said it then. So normal length sermon today, all right? Um, So, hey, we're jumping back into the book of Titus after spending two weeks away from this book because of retreats. Uh, But despite not being in the book uh, at retreats and on Sundays, we've still focused on this idea of discipleship. Uh, In Titus, we've been really gazing at the idea of discipleship, and we've spent each week looking at various aspects of discipleship. In fact, we've thrown up this chart that's about to be behind me every single week because we want you to understand that discipleship is more holistic than we tend to give it credit for. We focused on corporate discipleship, how things like leadership or structure or how even lowly positions can corporately disciple the masses as they behave in a certain way that is in line with the gospel. We get to participate in this in beautiful ways. 
But we've also studied individual or personal discipleship, the things that we tend to think about, like the older discipling the younger or doing life on life together by which we can see the beauty of Jesus in each other's lives, coffee shop type, type of discipleship. And by God's grace, I also got a merit gift card two weeks ago. Won't he do it? Basketball, merit, come on, praise him. God's good, okay? So today what we're doing is we're taking these two ideas and we're combining them together and showing what exactly are we discipling people towards, both corporately and personally. Now remember, our definition of a disciple is someone who loves, follows, and serves Jesus with all of themselves. Therefore, discipleship or disciple making is very simply helping others to love, follow, and serve Jesus as well. We can do this both corporately and individually, but if we boil it all down, what exactly are we trying to help them to love? Like, how do we know if we're winning? What is the target that we're shooting at to prove our love? What is it that we are trying to follow? How is it that we are trying to serve? As we love, follow, and serve Jesus, what exactly are we trying to do in the midst of that? That's what we're thinking about today. Uh, the title of the sermon is The Gospel Makes Disciples. And anytime the word gospel is in the title of the sermon, then you know why I was tempted to preach long, all right? The gospel, the message of and belief in Christ's ministry and what Christ has done is the most important discipleship tool, both corporately and individually or personally, as we seek to make disciples. That's a big claim, but we're going to unpack that today, that the gospel message, the message of the gospel is the most important tool. And what I also want to do in a second is I want to uh, uh, introduce a second framework in our discipleship series as well that will hopefully bless you as disciples of Christ and also help you more effectively make disciples of others as we meditate on the gospel this morning. When we say a disciple loves Jesus, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that we want them to love Jesus with all of themselves. In fact, Jesus helped us to define this very type of love for us. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus says this after asking what is the most important commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and all of your strength. The teal was also in the original manuscripts there. Just kidding. Heart, soul, mind, strength, right? This is the framework by which we test our love. Jesus also said in John chapter 14, verse 15, that if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. So how do we know if we're loving, following, and serving Jesus with all of ourselves? Will we test our love as we act in obedience? And so I want to give you a second framework by which hopefully visually you can see this this morning. I want us to think about our love in a frame, okay? How do we love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, that's what a disciple does, would follow Jesus with all of themselves. I want us to think about this. There are 1,050 commands in the New Testament. That's a lot to follow. That's a lot to serve. That's a lot of different ways by which we are supposed to love. And Jesus also told us very clearly that he wants us to love and to follow and to serve him with all of ourselves. So not just that we love him with our mind because we know how to think about this, but he wants our hearts or our hands as well in every single one of the 1,050 commands. 
That should begin to feel burdensome, and it is apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is what Jesus desires from us, a fully devoted, fully submitted, fully following life of Jesus. In case we're a little bit unfamiliar with the way the New Testament tends to use these terms, I want us to break down real quick. The heart, if you think about that, are like your feelings, your, your emotions, your desires. The, the soul is like your beliefs and your convictions and your, your, the driving force down in your gut. Your mind is your thinking and your reasoning and your processing. And then your strength are your actions, your works, your, your hands that are moving for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says he wants all of this following him and every single command of his. So let me give you an example of how we do that. Let's take something like prayer. Let's say that you're assessing yourself as a disciple. You can take prayer and begin to funnel it through this framework to see if you're really loving, following, and serving Jesus in every way. Now, there's all types of commands of prayer throughout the New Testament, but we're just going to take it as a general. Most people would agree that the Bible says we should pray. So let's say that you believe that, like deep down in your gut, your conviction, your soul, you have faith that God answers prayers and you know because you trust God that prayer is a good thing. You do not need soul convincing, your soul is activated, hence it being a darker color there on the screen. Let's say that you also understand this with your mind, right? Like you know how to pray. You don't need to be taught the methods of prayer. You have a nice little framework by which to pray. In fact, you understand the commands of scripture. Maybe you've even read books on prayer. So your soul and your mind is activated in prayer. Is that enough to love, follow, and serve Jesus with all of yourselves? Well, Jesus would also say that he desires our heart in prayer. We should be cheerful. We should be, have gratitude. We should feel and commune with God emotionally as we pray. Let's say that that's a part of you that's just not activated in prayer whatsoever. He also wants our strength, our hands. So let's say that even though we believe it deep down, if we're only praying once every other week, we're probably not really using our strength in the way that God would desire us for one of his commands is that we would pray without ceasing. And every other week isn't praying without ceasing. We would all agree to that. So our minds and our souls are activated in prayer, but our, our hands and our, our heart maybe isn't. We can now filter this command of prayer through this framework and say, man, we are short-sighted. We are, we are short-circuiting the power of prayer because our heart and our strength isn't fully activated. You can assess yourself as a disciple of Jesus using this framework as you love, follow, serve him with all of yourself. You tracking so far? Let's move to a second one. Let's move to scripture. Let's say you're not assessing yourself, but you're assessing somebody else that you're trying to disciple. Someone in your CG, your, your spouse, a child of yours, maybe somebody that's asked you to disciple them. In scripture, you're looking at the individual and you're like, man, when they get in the Bible, they feel it. Like they're crying or they're excited or they always wanna share it with somebody. Like their emotions are driven in the scriptures and they believe in the power of the scriptures. There's no convincing needed here. Their soul believes that these are the very words of God. They are convinced that God speaks to them in the scriptures and they're even reading it every single day, let's just say. But as you begin to talk to them, you realize they don't really know how to interpret the Bible well. 
They don't really know the, the methods by which to observe the text and then interpret the text and then apply the text. Maybe even their mind is wandering all over the place every single time that they pray. They don't know how to activate their brain. So they're feeling very heavy when they're in prayer, but they're not thinking very lofty when they're in prayer. And God has given us brains as well. He wants us to love him with all of ourselves. So you can now look at the person you're discipling and say, how do we grow in our mind in scripture? How do we grow in our minds as we think about kind of exegeting, believing, following, understanding the word of God together? Maybe you read a book together. Maybe you take a free seminary course. Maybe you try to activate the mind in different way because once again, there's shortness in the discipleship. You can take any one of the 1,050 commands of Christ and what you can do is you can begin to pass it through this framework. And you can ask the question, are we really following or serving Jesus, that's the commands, with all of ourselves, that's our love. And as we pass it through the framework, the deeper it goes, the bigger that frame should be getting because the more of Jesus we begin to see, the more we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the more our heart's affections and our soul's convictions and our mind's beliefs, the more it it begins to expand and we see more and more of the picture of God. Y'all tracking with me so far? Cool, because we're gonna use this idea throughout this morning, okay? So how is it, generally speaking, that we do this very thing, that we grow in this love? How do we increase our framework so that we see more and more of Jesus? Y'all know how when you put a picture in like a Microsoft Word document and then you only stretch one side of it, it gets like super distorted and weird? Yeah, am I like dating myself? Do y'all still do that? <laughs> Dang, give me some feedback, all right? Right? Listen, uh, that is a distorted view. And we want disciples to grow properly. And often in our discipleship, we focus so much on the mind or so much on the heart or so much on the soul or so much on the strength. And we miss the other aspects that we start to misgrow in our discipleship and we become distorted disciples. So how do you love with all of yourselves? How do you activate your heart? How does your soul believe? How does your mind engage? How does this framework grow so that as we're obeying Jesus, we're not obeying Jesus out of legalism, but out of a soul that is surrendered to and inflamed by and captivated by the love of Christ? How do we do that? We focus on the gospel the very thing that Paul essentially ends his letter with in Titus. The gospel makes proportionate, not distorted disciples. Listen, the gospel transforms everything, saints. You cannot, as a Christian, graduate from the gospel. You can only grow into it. If you think that you have graduated from the gospel, then it was not the gospel that you were believing in. It may have been some system of theology with traces of the gospel, but it was likely a shadow to the substance. We want to be a gospel-saturated everything type of church because we believe that this will help our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength truly follow Jesus. And as we do that, fulfilling the great commandment to love him with all of ourselves, then automatically we will desire to follow the great commission, which is to make disciples of all of the nations, and we will be fully formed disciples of Jesus Christ. If we want to believe in discipleship and to make genuine disciples, then we have to believe in and constantly preach and rehearse and fall ever more in love with the beauty of Jesus, with the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you love him a little bit more by the end of this morning. 
Let's chop up what Paul is saying. Paul begins by saying four there in verse three, right? Uh, context from the sermon for three weeks ago, we are to do good works. The center of the frame, we follow the commands of Christ. That's what Paul is saying there in verses one and two. In fact, let's read that just to give us a little bit of context again. Titus three, verse one. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. There's two commands. To be obedient, third command. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy towards all people. There's eight commands right there, right? Eight of the thousand and fifty. And we are to follow that with all of ourselves. So this is what we are to do. And Paul's like, do you know why you should love Jesus by serving him in this way? like in verses one and two type of way. Do you know why you should love him like that? He says, for or because y'all were some ratchet, rusty, dusty, trifling looking people, right? Looking like boo-boo the fool out here, right? Listen, Paul says here, and it's really important that we understand this because it's gonna help us believe and receive the gospel in its fullness and then disciple others in that as well. He says, we were once foolish and disobedient. The first two things he says there, foolish and disobedient in the Greek are both active verbs, meaning we are intentionally sinning. We are doing things that are against the will of God. We are hurting others, hurting ourselves, hurting God's creation. We are doing sinful things. Then he says that we were also deceived and enslaved. In the Greek, those are both passive verbs, meaning we were the victim of something that we could not control. So not only were we foolish and disobedient ourselves, but then evil was also around us and within us, controlling us towards sin. We needed help because something inside of us and around us was trying to turn us away from the person of God. We had malice and envy. Those are two ugly twins, church family. Malice is wishing people evil. Envy is wishing for people's good for yourself. I want your bad, malice, and I want your good, but not for you, for me. Pause, before you think I'm just reading a list about sin. Didn't you once live in this family of God? Like, can't you still feel traces of the flesh inside of you that have not yet been fully cleansed or submitted to and surrendered to the blood of Jesus Christ? Can't you still feel some of this? For example, you've never wanted someone else's platform, their money, uh, their body, their spouse, because you don't have one. That's called envy. You've never hoped for someone's downfall because of the things that they have done to you. That's called malice. We are closer to these sins than we would like to lullaby ourselves into thinking. We are following the prince of the power of the air. We, notice what Paul says there, we, right? Paul isn't throwing shade. We do this from the greatest of the apostles to Paul to the lowliest of servants, which is who Paul was just addressing. We were hating and hated other things. Listen, we used to think that this wasn't as much of a sin issue and then social media came out and exposed everyone. Y'all some haters. We some haters, right? And just because you don't type the nasty comments on social media, you know you go read them. Hating, 
We are that. Y'all, let's stop tricking ourselves, right? Sin, it was raging within us and it was stealing our love. Sin was trying to get our heart, soul, mind, and strength to love and obey and to serve it. And it was winning. It was winning. We did the actions of sin. That's called our strength. We loved and desired sin. That's called our heart. We thought about sin. That's called our mind. And we believed deep down in our souls that God wasn't enough and that sin would give us something that God wasn't giving to us. So we slept with that woman. We didn't give generously. We lied on that application because our souls did not trust God. Listen, family, just like you can love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that can be achieved or else Christ wouldn't tell you to do that. And that is the goal of our discipleship. The reverse can be true as well. We can love sin with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is the discipleship goal of Satan in your life. Remember, we're all making disciples. It's just what and towards who right? That's week two. Okay. We are also all being discipled. That was week three. It's just by what and by who the enemy of Satan and your flesh and the world around you is trying to attain your love as well, saints of Christ. And I know you can feel it. I know you can feel it around you and within you. It's just one of Satan's tricks is to not get you to remember who you were before Jesus so that you think that you don't need Jesus as much as you actually do. But you need Jesus because sin is raging and it is at war. No matter how long you've been in the faith, you still struggle with these things because Satan is still trying to disciple you away from the love of Jesus Christ. Notice the discipleship of evil, even in this passage. We were foolish, disobedient. That's our strengths, our actions, our hands. We were led astray. That's our mind. That's our thinking. We were slaves to passion and malice. That's our heart. That's our emotions that are driving us. In fact, we were even hating other people. That is our soul. Can y'all feel this? I mean, look at the contrast between verses one and two and verse three. Submissive to foolish. Obedience to disobedience ready to do good, enslaved to evil. Kindness and peace on one hand and uh, uh, envy and malice on the other. Humble and gentle versus hating and hating another. There are eight commands in verses one through two. There are eight things that we do that sin in verse three because we are tempted to do the exact opposite of who we've been created to be in Christ. So how can we get from verse three to be a people that are like verse one and two. What can we do, y'all? What can we do? What can we do to do that? Well, I think that's the wrong question, but that's the question that tricks us away from being able to ask the right question. There's nothing that we can do, but when we see verse one through three, or verse three, we believe that there's something we gotta do to muster up this goodness. We are and we're like people in verse three, because even if you choose not to actively do sin, there is still sin that is oppressing you from the outside and that oppression through the oppressor's abuse will end up breaking you, right? But God, verse four says, I thought that phrase would be good news for more than three people this morning. But God, he saved us. He, he, he saved us. 
He did something where we were oppressed by sin and could not do it ourselves. Verses four through seven, it's a single long sentence in the Greek where Paul gets litty lit about the gospel, y'all. And I hope you will this morning too. Listen, God saw our oppressive actions of sin and the way that sin was an oppressor and a tormentor, an Egypt to us and love appeared, saints. Our evil was met with the love and the deliverance of God. 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 God loves you. Y'all what? I'm sorry. I don't think I can ever get over that phrase. God loves, verse three, you. Before, Romans 5, 8 tells us, before there was anything that we had done, God loved us while we were still, verse three. And God appeared. Look at what moved God to save you, y'all, to win your heart, soul, mind, and strength to you. It was his kindness, his love, his mercy, and his grace. Those are powerful words all within one sentence. For us, we get three of those words in one verse. Can I take back your love from that liar Satan this morning, y'all? Because he's been trying to disciple you all week away from this love of God. And I want you to know the love of God this morning. I want the word to help you to love, follow, and serve Jesus right now. Look at how all three persons of the Trinity are active in your salvation. It is not just Jesus that loves you, beloved. It was the entire Godhead that does. The love of the Father is what took the initiative. So when you think that God is just this, this wrathful God, you're being discipled by Satan. That is not the truth of the scriptures. He has proven his love over and over and he took the initiative to save you. God loves you. The death of Jesus is how the grace and mercy of God appeared. And the inward work of the spirit is how our souls even became awake to the gospel to experience rebirth and renewal in the first place. Some of y'all missed it. Don't worry, the bus is coming back that way in a minute. Listen, remember how pre-Jesus, nothing in Christianity made sense, right? Like, it's like, why are these dudes raising their hands? Why are we talking about blood and atonement? It's weird, y'all. Like pre-Christianity, the stuff that we're saying we believe, it's kind of strange. And then one day you felt a fire in your heart or in your soul, or it made sense in your mind. And then you came to faith and then so much of this made sense. You were dead. Then the Holy Spirit regenerated generator turned on. You came back to life. You were dead. And then all of a sudden it made sense because the Holy Spirit of God decided to save you because God saved you where you cannot save yourselves. That's why y'all know those testimonies where it's like, hey, I grew up in church, but I never actually heard the gospel until I was like 23. It's like, okay, um, maybe that's true. Maybe you grew up in a church that did not do a good job of proclaiming the gospel. That does exist. Or maybe they did a great job at proclaiming the gospel. You just couldn't hear it because you were dead. But God saved you. And now it makes sense, y'all. Why? Why did God save us? Because God loves you. That's what it says here, right? Like, do you hear me, saints of Christ? You are in Christ because God loves you. He delights in you. He wants to be with you. And if you are not in Christ, I want you to recognize God's potential call of you. Even this morning, he desires intimacy with you as well. And your sins are not greater than God's love. You can come to him this morning. 
The God of the universe desires you. So many of us want to be accepted by everyone and everything. We are looking for acceptance and for recognition and for love. And the God of the universe, despite our sin and our offense against him, he looks at you and says, that one. But God, here comes the bus. Notice the three tenses of salvation that correlate with the Trinity's activity in our salvation. In the past, you are justified and regenerated. That is a past action. To be justified means to be made right with God again. It was the spirit that regenerated us. It was the father that proclaimed justification over us. And there was the son of God that spilled out his blood so that you can be in the past saved. But in the present, you're still being saved as well. There is new life now and the power of the Spirit to continue that deliverance ministry that he started until the end of all things when the inheritance that is yours in Christ will be achieved. Do you know what is coming for you, saints of God? The inheritance and irony, it ain't the castles, it ain't the gold, it ain't the crowns. We ain't gonna care about that because if that was the inheritance, we could get that here on this earth. The inheritance is God himself. Love, kindness, glory, beauty incarnate. That is the inheritance that is coming to you when we were trying to reject that very thing. God saved you. Here's what I'm saying, saints of Christ. It is not enough to say that grace appeared to all, like Paul said in chapter two, verse 11, just a few verses prior, Generally speaking, we must also say that he appeared to and therefore saved us or even me. Our Savior appeared. And what saves people is an encounter with Jesus. And discipleship is simply trying to help people encounter Jesus for their justification, for their current sanctification, or for their future glorification. It is turning the eyes on the only person that can deliver on Jesus over and over and over again. This is why believing in the gospel is the main tool of our discipleship. We're trying to make Jesus appear to all. Y'all tracking? To adorn the gospel, uh, appear. That word there in the Greek, um, it's kind of like the mass singer, the show, right? It's like this person's like singing and they're like really good and they take off their mask. It's like, oh my God, it's a celebrity, right? I've actually never even seen the show. I'm just assuming that's how it is, right? It's like, what? Okay, uh, that's right. In the Old Testament, it was really hard to see. And then Jesus came and we should be floored. He appeared. For everyone in this room who believes at some point Jesus appeared to you, I don't just mean physically manifestation like you saw Christ. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you had a New Testament experience again. All of a sudden, what was so hard to see in the Old Testament, it made sense now in the New Testament you. You were saved because God appeared to you again. Uh, that word actually in the Greek appeared. What it is, is this complex word where it's talking about the clouds at night and you can't see anything because of all of the clouds. Remember, there's no electricity. So at nighttime, if you had to travel and the clouds were in the sky, it would have been really dangerous and difficult. But that word appeared is the word for when the clouds start to part. And not only can you see the stars, but the stars can also help you see as well. That's what Jesus did. Not only can you see Jesus, but Jesus also is helping you see as well. At some point, what was cloudy became clear. 
Sometimes it's through your mind. It started to just literally, intellectually make sense. Sometimes it's through your heart. You began to feel it emotionally. You started weeping in a church gathering and you had no idea why, because you came in not even believing and now you believe. Jesus appeared. Sometimes it's through your soul. You just believe it. Sometimes it's through your hands. You start to follow the ways of Christ for a year and you start to realize, wow, the ways of Christianity really are better than anything else. And it starts to just make sense and you choose to submit your life to Jesus, whether it's through your heart or your soul or your mind or your strength. At some point you had an encounter with Jesus and you believed it. And regardless for each of us, maybe even right now as I'm speaking, Jesus became real to you. The thing that you heard about became a person that you loved. The Old Testament prophet became God in the flesh and exegeted the Father's love for us. The gospel is what we focus corporately on each Sunday, therefore, which there's so much here, y'all, I wanna pull apart more. Like the inheritance that is coming, the Spirit's activity in your salvation, the fact that God is wanting to reveal himself to you in your heart and or soul and or mind and or strength, meaning God is trying every way that he can think of to get to you because of his desire for you. But this is the gospel, and it is the key to us following the commands of Jesus with all of ourselves, including the overarching command to make disciples. It is remembering the gospel daily. That's why in verse 8, Paul says, insist on these things. For some of us, it's hard to remember or to even believe that we were that bad. Verse 3, bad. We don't remember or insist on verse three of the gospel and therefore verse four doesn't really hit our hearts like it should. Or for others, we believe that we are that bad and we don't remember verse four of the gospel that God saved you, not you saved you and we forget the love of God. In fact, what we tend to rehearse in our mind is that God is disappointed in us. This is what we choose to remember. No wonder why we're stale in our love and guilt-driven in our actions because in that type of remembrance, we're remembering an anti-gospel, a demonic gospel, not spoken through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, but it is the seeds of weeds that have been sown by an enemy into the fields of your soul to get you to remember the wrong thing. You believe that you are not worthy of the love of God, despite the fact that you professed faith 10 years ago. And I wanna tell you, you didn't do anything to deserve that love. So in some ways you're right, you're not worthy, but God said you are worthy, believe in his word, y'all. Not your words, not your actions. And so we don't think we're bad enough. So then there's no good news for us because it's only as good as you realize you are bad. Or we know that we're bad, We let that tell us who we are, as if our bad is worse than the kindness of our God is good. As if Jesus doesn't love your soul so much that he's willing to be shredded in two for you. We must remember these truths, saints. And listen, corporately, okay? Let's pull these two together. In the singing of songs, Y'all know that we kind of have a gospel flow in our songs. We think about the creator God, and then we think about the fallenness of our sin. Then we think about the redemption of Christ. Then we think about our restoration of Jesus. The song choice has a gospel narrative. And the preaching of God's word, we always end looking at Jesus because that is our main discipleship tool. In communion that we eat, in the serving or the giving or the fellowship or the love of the saints, corporately, it is why the gospel is laced 
context in everything that we do because we keep being discipled away from the gospel and our job is to disciple people towards it. Similarly, in individual discipleship, it should be the focus of everything that you're doing as well. Gospel truth should be incorporated into everyone's individual disciple-making process because we have to remember there is an assault happening on your active memory and it may be the biggest threat. In fact, I would argue that your remembrance is the biggest place where you feel spiritual warfare because even though you know this to be true, you're gonna go read tomorrow morning and have a hard time believing it's true. Why? because you have an enemy that does not want you to follow this, y'all, who's trying to disciple you out of loving God. And so our hearts, our souls, our minds often don't engage because we do not exercise them to act. We let our souls sit dormant. And do you know the exercise that works the muscle of our soul? It's remembrance. Remembering the gospel is the bench press for our soul so that we can believe in the goodness of our God. So Paul says, insist on these things, things, plural, meaning there's even more to the gospel than just this. What Paul is mentioning is one aspect of a multifaceted diamond of the gospel. The gospel is both massive and it is extensive. Okay, now look, I'm almost done, stay with me, okay? Paul spends so much time here talking about what Jesus has done so that you devote yourself to good works. So you are not saved by your good works, but you are saved to them. And what helps you do good works? What helps you follow, love, and serve Jesus? All of those commands of Christ, it's the gospel, y'all. Paul always does this. In fact, I intentionally left all this on one screen. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, just for another example here. Verses one through nine is all of his explanation of the gospel. It's like you were dead, you were wicked, Satan had control of your body, but God, and he saved you, grace through faith, that's not by works. He does all of this gospel remembrance. And then in one little verse, he reminds us, okay, now we are to go do good works in light of that gospel. He does the same thing here in Titus. He spends all of this time talking about Christ. And then he gives like three words to good works. Why? If you understand the gospel, it is impossible but to move towards faithfulness in Jesus. We will be like verses one through two, not like verse three as we remember. And so now the commands of Christ, they're actually easy to follow with all of ourselves. That's why 1 John 5 says, the commands of Christ are not burdensome to those who believe. As we believe in the gospel, they become beautiful works of fruit in our life. So back to the framework real quick. I want you to think about this. Now we've talked about this. This can feel like, oh, it's just like internal. It's just me. I have to believe this. But no, we all do this together, y'all. A la Will Sermon last week. Notice even in the text, you can keep the framework up. You don't have to go to the text. But it's others that are insisting you on these things. And so as you come to church, let the worship team insist on this. Let the welcome team insist on this. Let your sisters and brothers remind you that God loves you, that he's for you, that he wants you, that he's trying to restore you. Be willing to be rebuked. That's what the rest of the passage says when you fall out of line with the gospel. But these gospel truths, which move us to gospel works, now you can go to the text, they're profitable for everyone, meaning individually and corporately, we all, everyone needs to do this together. That is the work of discipleship, helping people to love, follow, serve Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and all of the commands of Christ. Now, real quick, let's keep it a buck. 
None of us do this, right? That's why Paul ends with, hey, be careful to guard this stuff. We should be killing sin. In fact, we should even remove people from congregations that are so pushing against the gospel that it would get other people to stop believing in the goodness of the gospel. That's how serious this is because everything is after your soul, saints of God. You have to realize that Jesus loves it more. That means at times the gospel is rebuking the Satan in our life or the individual that is acting like an enemy to their own soul. That's how he ends the passage. Uh, Let me say it like this. Discipleship with no challenge is not discipleship, it's cheerleading. And while it's encouraging, you may be cheering them towards the wrong goal, y'all. We need to be coaches that challenge one another towards the beauty. So that's why we rebuke our own flesh even at times. Killing sin is a response to belief in the gospel. That's not to say that one is sinless. It just means that you desire to sin less because you know that sin is removing you from the goodness of God. So can I remind us of the gospel one more time to close us? Family, it is only through Jesus that this gospel is realized. Jesus was not foolish or disobedient. He was not enslaved to sin because he never once did any sin. He did not hate anyone and yet he died with everyone hating him. He died as if he was full of malice, even though he was full of love. And even though he was full of love, he died as if he had all envy. In reality, there was nothing but kindness in your savior. Jesus died drinking the punishment that we deserve because of the wages of our sin so that we can have the wages of a sinless son, the inheritance to come, which is God himself, the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Tell everybody, there's a God that loves you. And now family of God, really easy application to close. If I said right now, hey, like, okay, so would y'all pray about going overseas, like selling everything, going overseas? Do you know that you'd be more likely to do it right now than when you came in? Why? Because you're remembering the gospel. If I said to do that on Wednesday, you'd be like, um, I don't really know, right? And it'd be really, really hard to think about. Now, maybe you would out of guilt begin to act like you're going to move, but I wanna tell y'all that guilt is a temporary motivator, but a long-term poison. That often creates hard-hearted bitterness towards Christ and towards the things of Christ in the long run. That's all that guilt does. Why do we feel more compelled now? Because we're remembering the gospel. So your action might not be to go overseas. Okay, that's cool. But think about all the commands of Christ. Think about the framework. Is it to kill sin? Aren't you more motivated now? Not out of your active obedience, but God saved you. Maybe it is to remember the gospel, like verses one through two tell us. Maybe it's to make disciples. As you remember the gospel, it will stretch your framework naturally and you will want to do every command with all of yourselves. Why? Because the gospel is what makes disciples. And then in discipleship, as we help others to do this too, then we are fully formed followers of Jesus, y'all. And so let us always share the gospel corporately and individually, so that we can make genuine disciples of Christ. Remember, God loves you. He loves you. Amen. I love you guys like crazy. Let's pray. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. You are good, Jesus. You are good. 
God, I want to pray just really intentional things here real quick. One, for all of us who believe and who follow and who love and who trust and who serve, who want more of you, Jesus, I pray that Jesus, we would love you more, but not out of some exercised obedience. Like we've got to muster up our love. Let us see that God saves us. The loving kindness of you. God, would you forgive each of us in this room where these truths have become stale? Would you teach us to sing a new song with the exact same lyrics of the old gospel even today? That it becomes fresh in our hearts again. Would we see that you love us, that you save us? God, I pray for every individual in this room who came in, maybe not as a Christian. Maybe you came in unaware that God loves you, feeling like you shouldn't be accepted in the household of God. Maybe you came in with your own hostility towards God. That is true in verse three. And maybe over the course of the gathering this morning, God has appeared. Friend, I would encourage you, your response is to believe, to place your faith, your trust, to follow Jesus. As you love, follow, and serve him, you are made right with God in the past. You your life will change. You will taste the goodness of God and your future will be secured because of God's love for you. If you say, Jesus, I wanna follow you. I place my faith in you. I want you to be my God and King. Hey, I have sinned, would you forgive me? As you pray these types of prayers, what you're saying is I want to surrender to you, God. I wanna enter into your family. And God says, come in, beloved, come in. You can come into the family of God today through faith. God, I pray that each of us who have made that profession of faith, that we would remember that you love us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.